The Earth hasn't always been the solid rock we know it as today. Four and a half billion years ago, a Mars-sized object smacked into it and turned our planet to molten metal. Of course, things have cooled off since then, but its legacy lives on every time you look at a compass needle. I'm Jenna Bilbrey, and I'll be your guide on a journey to the center of the Earth. On our way, we'll find out how the Earth's core formed, what tools scientists are using to study it, and learn about some strange rumblings that might turn our world upside down. It all started with the Iron Catastrophe. Our planet, at the tender age of 40 million, was only a hodgepodge collection of space dust when it was suddenly pummeled to pieces. This is the event that splashed the moon out of the Earth. That was Raymond Jean Lowe, professor of Earth and planetary science at the University of California, Berkeley. And we think that Earth was hit by an object perhaps the size of Mars, a relatively substantial object, with a glancing impact that literally splashed material out of our planet, out of planet Earth. And from that debris, the moon ultimately grew. The impact heated our planet considerably, but it wasn't the only event warming things up. And in addition to that, we know that radioactivity can contribute to the heating of a planet. And specifically, very early on, in the first few million years of our solar system, we know that there were forms of radioactivity that were actually fairly intense and could have contributed to heating the Earth and other small planetary bodies as they were growing at that time. These two events, the impact and the radiation, heated the Earth to temperatures high enough to liquefy metal. The world was a floating ball of molten rock. The Earth's gravity pulled the denser metals, like iron and nickel, down through the molten mass, while lighter elements like silicon and oxygen floated up to the surface. The core once again settled to the center of our planet simply because it's the heaviest part of our planet being this iron-rich, steel-like material. As the Earth slowly cooled, it separated into distinct layers. The outer layer, the crust, solidified. The next layer down, the mantle, turned into a viscous putty. The inner core didn't cool quite as much, but was compacted into a solid ball in the intense pressure at the center of the Earth. The outer core is liquid because it's under less pressure, though it's not as hot as the inner core. So overall, starting at the center, the first quarter of the distance towards the surface of the planet is made up of a solid inner core surrounded by the next quarter of the distance to the surface of the Earth is the liquid outer core, and then the outer half of the planet is the much less dense mantle of the Earth. But we haven't always known that our planet has four layers. It wasn't until the 1930s that Danish seismologist Inga Lehmann discovered the Earth has both a liquid outer core and a solid inner core. She determined this by examining seismic waves, low-frequency sound waves rumbling inside of the planet. Vibrations from earthquakes, explosions, and volcanoes send pressure waves through the crust and mantle all the way down to the core. By examining how the waves are distorted as they pass through the Earth, Seismologists can collect a wealth of data about the planet's interior. Seismic waves are illuminating the interior of the Earth, delineating which stratigraphic sections are where inside the planet, and ultimately can help us understand how the planet has formed through geologic time. That's Jennifer Jackson, 
professor of mineral physics at Caltech's seismological laboratory. When an earthquake hits or a volcano erupts, the pressure of the event pushes against the rock below. And at some point, they really can't sustain that deformation anymore. So they're being pressed and squeezed to a point where microstructurally they break. This breaking sends shock waves in all directions. Some of the waves skid across the surface, but some travel deep into the earth, passing through the crust, the mantle, and the core. The waves are measured by recording ground movements with an instrument called a seismometer, and seismometers are very sensitive. Crashing ocean waves are enough for seismologists in Missouri to detect hurricanes approaching the Gulf Coast. So when a large earthquake shook New Zealand in 1929, Lehman poured over the seismic records looking for anomalies. The data that she analyzed from that earthquake was very puzzling for her because up to that point, most geophysicists took on the notion that the Earth's core was completely molten. But what wasn't known was if there was any structure to that liquid part of the core. You know, most rough analysis of seismic waves from earthquakes up until 1930 uh, showed and sort of corroborated that hypothesis that it was pretty much 100% liquid. But with the improvement of seismometers and having a very large earthquake, which meant that the signal was quite strong, uh, she was able to observe certain arrivals that essentially should not have been in the time period at which she observed them at. These arrivals were the traveling seismic waves from the New Zealand earthquake. The strange time periods that Lehman saw indicated the waves had traveled a great distance through the earth then suddenly bounced back. That indicated to her that the core was not just a liquid ball of iron convecting. There was a solid innermost part of the planet, and that was you know, the first discovery of the inner core. To get a direct measurement of the core, we would have to drill down through almost 4,000 miles of extreme pressure and temperature to reach the center. Because any organic matter, such as us, would be simultaneously crushed and charred, and any metal instruments we brought along would be liquefied, we have to rely on indirect measurements to study what's actually going on beneath us. Tracking seismic waves as they travel through the Earth is the closest we can get to seeing the interior. Different materials distort these waves differently. From the speed of the waves and the change in travel time, Seismologists can examine layers in the Earth's interior and determine the materials that make up each layer. From this, and the relative abundance of elements in our solar system, they deduce that the core, both the inner part and the outer part, is made mostly of an iron-nickel alloy. Having the wave speeds from an earthquake, that's one part of the problem. Uh, what we need to do is connect that information with laboratory and theoretically determined wave velocities for minerals and rock assemblages. The seismographic measurements only track changes in the velocity of seismic waves and don't directly tell us what material the waves travel through. So these velocity changes need to be compared against known materials. This means researchers need to study a variety of materials under the same conditions as the Earth's core. We subject minerals that we suspect exist inside the planet, even taking natural samples that we find at the surface and subjecting them 
to the pressures and temperatures inside of the planet and conduct measurements on the seismic wave speeds, the crystal chemistry, the density of the mineral assemblage, the melting temperatures. These all allow us to construct what are the possible phases that can explain the seismic wave. In these experiments, both seismologists and planetary scientists replicate the pressure and temperature of the core using diamond anvil cells. To replicate these intense pressures and temperatures, scientists place a sample smaller than a millimeter in size between the point of two gym grade diamonds. As the diamonds are pressed together, the sample is compressed causing the pressure to rise to close to that of the Earth's core. Because diamonds are optically clear, lasers can be beamed through the cell to heat the sample to high temperatures, mimicking the conditions in the core. Then measurements can be made using x-rays, microwaves, magnetic fields, and other types of radiation. But this isn't the only way to recreate conditions in the core. And then another method involves shooting a bullet at a sample, uh, hitting a sample. And this is really the laboratory version of what we were talking about earlier in terms of planetary impacts. These are laboratory-scale impacts. The material is taken to very high pressures, and also it's heated up considerably in those impact processes. The advantage to these kinds of impact experiments is that we can study much larger samples. So in many ways, we can make a lot of detailed measurements on the samples just because they're much bigger and easier for us to handle and to examine in great detail. The temperature in the core is extreme, around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, similar to the surface of the sun. And the pressure is no friendlier at 3.6 million atmospheres. For comparison, up here on the crust, Sea level is around one atmosphere. So can we actually reach this pressure in the lab? Those pressures and temperatures have been reached and exceeded. Much of my own research group's work involves not a mechanical bullet impacting a sample, but in fact a very intense light pulse. So a pulse of light from a very powerful laser that can similarly generate very, very high pressures and high temperatures, albeit for very short periods of time. But these laser-based technologies now are allowing us to get to many tens of millions of atmospheres and even hundreds of millions of atmospheres. And so we're really now at a point where we talk about not just reproducing the conditions inside our planet, but reproducing the conditions inside much larger planets like Saturn and Jupiter and many of the planets being observed around uh, other stars. The Earth's core still holds some mysteries in its pressurized grasp. Somehow, seismic waves travel about four seconds faster when going north to south rather than east to west. From this observation, we know the inner core isn't perfectly spherical. Like wood grain, the core is anisotropic. It's oriented in a certain way that allows the pressure waves to go faster when they travel in a certain direction. There's still many outstanding questions that haven't been answered about trying to explain some of the seismic observations, trying to explain seismic anisotropy in the inner core. Is that because there are two different iron alloy phases crystallizing out? Was there some traumatic event during the inner core crystallization that secured one type of seismic fabric in one area and another type of fabric in another area? Are any of these related to making the Earth's 
geodynamo more efficient or less efficient. And that's where, you know, us surface dwellers care because the Earth's magnetic field protects us from cosmic rays. As the Earth rotates, the liquid outer core spins, causing the electrically conducting material in the outer core to swirl. This convection creates the magnetic field that protects us from solar radiation. Without the geodynamo, as the process is called, the Earth's atmosphere, and thus life, would never have formed. Without the field, it would be very difficult to protect living organisms from some of these solar events. The core is still evolving. It's cooling, solidifying from the bottom up and crystallizing the outer core. Eventually, the liquid core will be gone, turn completely solid. When that happens, our magnetic field will collapse and the planet will be vulnerable to solar radiation. But no need to worry. This cooling will take billions of years. And, oh, by the way, there are some hints that the magnetic field is actually evolving right now. I don't want to speculate so far as to say that it's collapsing or about to reverse north and south, but something is happening down there that is attracting our attention that we can see in the measurements and we're in the research community increasingly homing in on a deeper understanding of what those dynamics are that are going on far beneath our feet. It's just to say that even though the core is rather remote, it has an influence that we really can sense firsthand here at the surface of the planet. The strength of the magnetic field has weakened by more than 50% over the past 4,000 years, with 5% of that drop happening in the past century alone. Magnetic fields tend to decrease in strength before reversing north and south poles, but weakening alone doesn't mean a flip will occur. Some scientists think this weakening is just a minor disturbance, while others believe a magnetic field reversal is imminent. The Earth's magnetic field reverses erratically, staying around for 30 million years at a time, then reversing in cycles every few 10,000 years. On average, the Earth's field flips every 450,000 years, but it's been almost 780,000 years since the last flip. We're due for a reversal, but scientists don't know when it will happen. It could be in the next 100 years, or it could be in the next 100,000 years. If the field were to flip, humans would likely survive, seeing as how our ancient ancestors survived the last reversal. But satellites and power grids would be disrupted as magnetic storms of charged particles emitted from the sun rained down on the Earth. If we knew more about the basic properties of the core, we would better understand the geodynamo that sustains the magnetic field. Then we wouldn't have to guess when the field will flip, we'd know. That concludes our journey to the center of the Earth. I hope no one was charred or crushed on the way down. For more information about the podcast, be sure to check out our accompanying blog post on Physics Buzz. I'm Jenna, and thank you for listening. <laughs>